show dot has next episode next episode dot listen am i right guys and we're back with yet another one i plus plus just uh been smoking a lot of the northern lights recently it's an indica strain if you're not aware man it's making me see colors i'll tell you that much okay This week we're kind of kind of get into it a little deep today. Talk a bit about a uh, real experience in uh, the real world when it comes to working at a real company. So a lot of it's happening right now. You might have heard of it before. You might have seen it before. You know, to get the can, the boot, the pink slip, to see a sun setting, or uh, to be let go, separated. Uh, fired and reduction in force (laughs) for all the ways I could think about it. I feel like a lot of times it's been referred to me as a riff reduction force. I kind of like it. You riff funds, you know, it sucks. I've been through a whole bunch of them myself to be sitting there and sometimes it comes out of nowhere and you know, you just get to work the next day and 20 people that you worked with every single day are now gone. You know? Shit can suck. And then what you don't expect is that there's another cut after that <laughs> a few weeks later. You know, even when they say that there's quote-unquote no cuts planned. If cuts, if cuts come, they'll come. Thing is with that I've learned in my time is that, uh, you know, you never, you, you don't know anything. <laughs> Unless you're like a higher up at a company, you know, your manager or something like that, like these things can just drop. Like you'll just, as a regular ass worker, you're just sitting there chilling on a Thursday evening. If you get an email for like a meeting at like 9 a.m. on a Friday, then that's like almost always bad news for like the next day, you know? And all hands, oh no, what's gonna drop? And it usually means that people are getting separated. They're getting emails that say, thanks, but no thanks, you're no longer working here. There's the door, here's your severance, adios. You know, never assume you're safe from one. And I would say that, you know, 10x that if you're at a startup. Because, you know, a lot of people get covered from startups. Startups cut people all the time because they overspend or misspend or whatever. Don't raise enough that they thought they were going to raise. Some other stuff is happening in the market they didn't predict. Whatever. They got to reduce headcount. We got to reduce money. Just always put yourself in the shoes of your manager and think like, you know, if I had to do a calculation on the team, what would that calculation look like? You know, everyone's replaceable. That's for sure. Anyone could leave the company at any time. That's for sure. Like, don't think that people just always stay in places. Don't think that no one's ever going to leave. You know, these things happen all the time, okay? You want to be in a position where if you don't want to leave, you don't get the can, right? 
a lot of times like what happens is that, you know, your your manager just gets to find out similar to you. It's just like one day all of a sudden, hey, we need you to cut people. Like, all right, you got to cut this amount, these many people, et cetera. And then they have to make a choice somewhere along the line. And if you're at the bottom of their list, you get to go. Uh, you know, it comes down to a whole myriad of factors for that, you know, for whatever that list ends up being. But, you know, I think Netflix, the way they operate for a long time or have operated was like if they're if your manager wouldn't fight to keep you, then they'd let your ass go. You know. So anyway, the, another tidbit of info I could say is that whenever there's like a new, you know, big, big change up in corporate structure, like a new C-suite guy comes in, like a COO or a CEO or something, there's always some sort of shakeup somewhere in there. They're going to want to reorganize, re-strategize, whatever. And that usually means cutting or adding or whatever. So, yeah, I've seen, I've seen about five or five or five or more at this point. That I've kind of been through. Some of them I've seen coming for like weeks and months. I've been like, yeah, like if you're in a big enough company, like rumors happen and the like big companies move pretty slowly for these things because they, they got to do a lot of calculations. But for startups, if you're under like, you know, 100 people or even like 50 people, like you can go, you can just like wake up the next morning and you're gone and you had no idea it was coming. That's because like, you know, things can change on a dime for smaller organizations that don't have that much cash. You know, some kind of risky play could not work out. All of a sudden, they have an absolute shoestring budget until they could raise more money. You know, and sometimes they'll be like, please stay as a, you know, what, two hours a week or go to contract or, you know, they'll try to like play things around or try to still keep people but pay them less. And then, you know, usually people either do that or they move on, go somewhere else. You know, that's kind of the downside of startups. It's not very, you know, secure sometimes. It can be a lot of fun, totally different from a huge, massive corporate environment. But, you know, cuts can come at startups pretty quickly for a whole bunch of reasons. But mostly it's got, you know, it's always financial in some respect, right? They don't, they want to reduce burn. And the way, a big reason, way to reduce burn is to fire some people. And it's funny because, like, you know, you just have to accept that it's going to happen. And, like, no amount of questions you can ask your manager or your manager's manager is going to yield you really any information. All you can do is just, like, verify that you're doing well. And you just, like, you know, if, as long as you have good one-on-ones with your boss and you have good uh, relationships, then you're able to kind of see whether or not you're safe or not. Uh, versus, like, if you get, like, bad vibes from all those kinds of people... Uh, yeah, then chop. You might be there. You might be uh, on the chopping block because it's gotta come. Anyway, that's what getting rift is like. You know, all of a sudden, bam! A huge part of your life's gone. And as a software engineer, it's like, ah, great. Now I gotta get, go to now to start interviewing. It's a pain in the ass to do that. Ugh. Or if you're staying. Uh, then it's like, you know, part of it is like, shit, I don't get to work with Greg anymore. That sucks. He was a cool dude. But then, you know, reality sets in in a couple of weeks. And next thing you know, you got three extra projects that you have to man up or 
or refactor or take home now you know you're working with fewer people and then depending on how much you're cutting it can end up becoming more of a like how you know skeleton crew you know if you had a startup who's like really cutting deep to to keep to keep things low spec until they can raise more funds or whatever then you could be sitting there with like you know people only working a few days a week to just keep the business running you know being there for outages and whatnot but at that point like so many other people are fired that you don't necessarily want to stick around anyway you know so yeah that's uh, all i'll really say about getting getting rift seeing that whole process go through all you can really do is leverage your network after that um or help help those who did get rift uh, get a new job by leveraging your own network, you know, by reaching out and whatnot. It's tough out there. There's a lot of layoffs are happening. A lot. A, a ton of, ton of, I mean, there was an absolute massive growth in the industry because of COVID. And then also a massive influx of cash uh, because of that. Because, you know, if you can kind of imagine the kind of corporate brain uh, of America. She's like, oh man, a, uh, a pandemic is happening. Everyone's going to stay inside. Everyone's going to be using the Facebook. I'm going to invest in that. And that's what everybody thought for every tech company, for Zoom, for Discord, or maybe not Discord, but any other public tech company. There's a bajillion of them. Any of them. Pick one. Probably saw their stock go up during COVID, you know? Because they were servicing a whole lot more shit. Not going to lie. They were taking in more revenue, for sure, for some of them. Like, holy guacamole, like the whole crypto thing of NVIDIA. Like, NVIDIA's stock, holy moly. Anyway, um, lots of money. Inflation, crash, whatever is happening, all this uncertainty, people are pulling out of the market, and now all those valuations go down. All of a sudden, you know, all these companies that leverage a lot of shit on their stock has to recalculate their strategies, you know? And then when they recalculate their strategies, they're like, oh, yeah, it'd be great if we just spent less money. How do we spend less money? What's the easiest way to do that? I don't know. Just fire a bunch of people. It's pretty grand scheme of things. It's, you know, pretty cheap. That's just the way she goes. And you can't be just stuck in this land. Like, I work at a family. You just got to always be thinking about putting your brain in the other person. I've, I've already said this. Put your, put your brain in the shoes of the people who may fire you and try to think, you know, what would you, what would you do if you had to make a calculation on who to let go? That's all you really can do is try to see it coming before it comes. Don't try to get complacent uh, because... Uh, when you will get blindsided that way, I've been in a lot of conversations with people where they would say, you know, like, hey, there's probably going to be some shit coming. And I'll be like, nah, I don't think so. I think everything's good here. Like, company doing good, I think. We write good code. And then, you know, that guy warned me, like, pieces out. And then, yeah, like, oh, hey, we have to, like, reduce pay or, you know, our paychecks are getting pushed back or, you know, oh, there's problems raising funding oh there's problems with spend oh glad i'm hearing about this now awesome all right getting over all of that kind of real life stuff you could run into there's a million bad things that can happen when you're working at a startup you just never know what's what's gonna happen there um anyway 
I want to talk about being an expert. You know, there's this video by Veritasium where he talks about, you know, becoming an expert, which is interesting. You know, I like that guy in his in his content. I watch it. It's very brainy. That's even an adjective. Uh, <clears throat> but the expert part of it for software engineering, I think, is uh, interesting because I've met a decent amount of experts, but there's also a lot of experts that are really they have the expertise in one particular area. And there are some people that have expertise in a lot of areas, but like, man, are they good at one? And be- that's because they think there are a lot of different avenues in software engineering. There are just a million things that you could learn down to the nuts and bolts if you wanted to. And in some cases, and depending on the job, you will. Like, for example, if you're if you're really into, you know, ingesting a lot of data in a short period of time, you know, you have to learn certain technologies for that. Or maybe you don't have to, but you usually do. Right? Like you have to learn how to take in data, that much data at once. You know how to stream it. And I think that kind of comes down to like using Kafka. <laughs> I've never used it, but I've talked to people that use it all the time. Or maybe not all the time, but I've had many conversations about Kafka when I've never used it. A better example for me would be like Elasticsearch. You know, really using Elasticsearch to be the most efficient and uh, the most optimized and more, most featureful is like, you know, there's just a, a bunch of different ways you can tokenize and do run searches and do pagination and do like, you know, scoring and evaluation on search terms. Like, it's like, if you want to make searching stuff like really, really finely done, like you can really tweak the hell out of Elasticsearch. And that takes like years of working with that sort of product and that open source library to be able to, you know, understand deeply that if you, you know, you might run into an issue, like say, for example, I'm running my project and I run into an Elasticsearch problem, like an error I've never seen before. And I just have no idea. And I like, you know, barely understand the concept of sharding or whatever, you know, like I can go to somebody who I've known has been working with Elasticsearch for like five years, be like, yo, what's this about? And be like, oh yeah, I remember seeing that back in uh, 2014. Yeah. That's an old one. What version are you running? Less than nine? I thought so. <laughs> There's what we're going to do. Or fix up your schema. You know, oh, we're going to do this, do that. There you go. You're all done. You know, sometimes you have experts that are like experts in libraries or experts in languages or experts in frameworks, you know. And that just kind of comes down to like whatever work they get or whatever work they're going for or whatever work, you know, comes across their plate. Some people don't, you know, choose to be certain engineers they just happen to get a job and that job happens to be using a certain framework next thing you know you they've been writing javascript for 10 years i'm not describing myself i'm describing myself uh but there's others out there the same thing you know oh i'm a .NET developer now because i got this job fuck it you know like i was ready to be a closure developer i was ready to write just closure all day every day uh, when I switched jobs once and I got there and they're like, you know what? We're going to do JavaScript. And I was like, okay, well, this saves me from having to <laughs> learn Emacs. All right, <laughs> let's go. So 
I was, you know, just kind of happens to be that way. Like you want, like if you want to do the best, if you want to, you know, first, ah, oh, crap, what's the term? Not first party, but first class. Yes, first class experience on the web. You gotta use the JavaScript, buddy. You know, you can't be sending it through some other shit. Just the libraries aren't there sometimes. You know, things don't work. You have to duct tape a lot of stuff to get it to work sometimes. You know. If you're using like languages that aren't like the most popular, like having a first class experience on what you want to do, like you can make a game in JavaScript. Like you could make a pretty dang good game in JavaScript. Is it going to be as easy to get that game onto an Xbox one? Eh, Probably not. You probably have a way easier experience with like, you know, a, a game engine because they have a like export to Xbox button. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's certain tools are better for certain jobs. How did I get on any of this? What was I talking about? Expert expertise. Yes. So you can be an expert in a lot of things, right? And get really deep into certain technologies and just not even imagine yourself uh, being there. But next thing you know, you're getting there. And it's not bad to learn that kind of stuff because this kind of ties back into the risk stuff. You get really good at one thing and that one thing is required as a critical path for your company, you know, for myself, I've worked on a lot of websites that are critical to, you know, the company working like a lot. Every company needs to have a website that functions in this modern day and age. Um, and if you're the guy that does that and keeps that running then you're kind of hard to get rid of, you know, say, for example, you're the one that architected and built the entire back end. You're going to be hard to get rid of. Right. If you're someone who has worked alongside the main architect as he built the whole thing and you retained all the knowledge and you're one of the go-to people to help debug things on that repo and you're hard to get rid of right so you don't even have to be an expert for that but you know that's that's kind of like being an expert as a software engineer is really just being really good at like one path because you can't learn it all even full stack engineers they either lean back end or lean front end depending on what their experience is right I could probably lean more front end, but it's starting to equalize more and more these days. I haven't written a like absolutely hairy front end in a while. I could I'm honestly uh, missing it a bit. I miss using Redux and like just a whole bunch of state stuff. And like sagas and promises and, you know, debugging some whack ass state thing or like why React is rendering weird or re-rendering weird or not rendering. I haven't had to do any of that stuff in quite a while because I'm, you know, building more of the overarching backend systems or or doing more architecture things on the front end to optimize things, you know, more senior level shit. Anyway, <clears throat> another thing I want to talk about, you know, the other four, you know, these expert expert things, how do you get there? It's all about the repetition. It's all about like, all right, I want to become an expert. You know, we have a project, we have a project at work. It's like, you know, it does the searching. So it's Elasticsearch. I'm going to go learn Elasticsearch. I'm going to go figure it out on my off time. I'm going to go like, you know, learn from, uh, put meetings in the calendar. The senior guy that knows Elasticsearch and like learn from him. You know, I'm sure you ask anybody that knows Elasticsearch. You ask them like, hey, tell me about Elasticsearch. I'm sure they'd love to share the knowledge because it was hard fought and won. And, you know, they'd want to make it easier for the next person. At least I would. Because God Almighty was that not super easy to learn. And now there's a whole bunch of ambiguity and I still don't fully understand it between, you know, Amazon, AWS, 
had some sort of schism with the well i mean it makes sense <laughs> so if you're not if you're not up to speed elasticsearch is an open source library that's like a database so to speak that allows you to search for things in a way that like google operates right so it does like you know all kinds of tokenizing and fuzzy matching and scoring and whatever and you can really use it to make some kick-ass searches right if you ever like work on a if you see a website where you like auto updates as you type that's auto querying or whatever that's sometimes Elasticsearch, you know anyway so there's this really great library that a lot of people use called Elasticsearch, and then amazon aws had the service called like you know Elasticsearch service and you go there to host Elasticsearch instances um and they make money off of that as amazon does right and then they make a bunch of money off of that and then they weren't like donating anything back to the open source library so the open source library folks were like ah geez Look at these guys using our code and not paying us or anything. And so they got angry at them. They wanted to, like, you know, not give them a license or they did some relicensing or whatever. So Amazon was like, okay. And they just forked it, made a new thing called Open Search. And then that's what they call it now Amazon Open Search. Even though, like, it still can run like older versions of Elasticsearch, there's some licensing dispute because of payment. I'm sure it's about money, like everything always is, or recognition or something. But now there's Open Search. And I'm not sure if that means I need to go learn open search or I can keep learning elastic search. I don't know what's, you know, if there's going to be a difference, if there is a difference, if I should really go upgrade the old stuff, which is currently running on the Amazon open search service, but it's currently an elastic search. Like, is it a good idea to upgrade that or to keep it depending on all the things I've already written for it? I don't really want to find out. I don't really want to know. I, all I know is that refactoring that whenever Amazon deprecates support for like whatever version of Elasticsearch I'm on. That's going to be a pain in the ass to fix. I feel like to go learn what the heck open search differences are and all that crap. Yeah. So anyway, back to the point for being an expert, you got to repeat on stuff like, do you know how many times I've written, you know, doc type HTML in my career? Like I've made written, I've made dozens of sites and services. You just got to like build and learn and repeat and just do that over and over again. And you could do that in a specific avenue like open search or like Node.js backend or no J or like JavaScript front end or go GRPC, um, serverless stuff. Like these are all like avenues you could take and just get really good at. And then just like position yourself well in a company where you're hard to get rid of because you contribute so much and you know so much about all those that all those frameworks and systems that you're a real go-to person for help or fixing like if you're a guy that can put out a bunch of software that like never causes issues and then you also solve issues all the time for other software that breaks or optimizing other things like you know you're gold anyway you gotta you gotta deliberately practice and you gotta iterate so those are the good things that kind of took away from that guy's video that I watched and that was posted around. Anyway, uh, we're going to talk a bit about these questions that I got here. Um, first one, it's like, how to go from learning programming to understand cloud-native computing? I have been learning software slash web development and programming for a year and a half now and keep hearing about cloud-native computing and things like Docker slash Kubernetes. Did that autocomplete or <laughs> Kubernetes? <laughs> But when I watch videos, I am beyond lost. <laughs> Don't worry, buddy. I'm also beyond lost when I watch Kubernetes videos. It ain't just you. <laughs> Bruh, I've been trying to learn Kubernetes for like 
four years. <laughs> Same with Docker. <laughs> You know, like whenever I have to do anything in those worlds, I'm just like, you know, keep a keep a tire window open for just documentation as I have to look through shit to relearn. All right. How do I uh, start? Uh, what's a what's a image container? Docker LS uh, Docker run. Which one is it? Dash IT. Oh, jeez. <laughs> how does what is a Docker command to build again? You know, or like, what's the guy? I got to compose it. Ah, shit. You know. I forget, we forget those things all the time. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. Anyway, um, he's beyond lost. I am always hearing how much employment there is in this area, but I can't wrap my head around how to start learning about it. How does one go from making Odin project level applications to understanding cloud native computing? Thanks. Uh, how does one go from that to that? Um, you don't usually go from that to that. Uh, if you want to go there, there's a kind of a few things you need to understand uh, about DevOps in general. Getting to like Docker and Kubernetes is just one piece of the very large puzzle that is DevOps. Um, and if you don't understand like why we do Docker in the first place, or like even the most basic setups of Docker are and how it kind of evolves from there you're kind of boned and even to kind of get there you need to understand how servers work and uh to even get there you need to <laughs> you need to like go through like i think the odin project i'm sure you deploy some shit like actual node.js apps right i haven't gone i have not gone through like the entire odin project i've read through it at least once but i'm sure it was regular i'm sure you make a node server at some point but they're probably having you deploy up to heroku which is just magic there's a lot of magic go, going on when you use like products like Netlify or Heroku or whatever. You kind of just give them your your Git repo and they figure it out the rest for you. You know, when you do Docker and Kubernetes, that's probably the most legit there is. And that's what companies do because they have a hell of a lot of services and a, a hell of a lot of configuration to do. And that's why they use Docker and Kubernetes, you know. Because there's just a shitload going on for doing regular stuff on the side, you know, using Heroku is just fine. But like, if you want to learn cloud native computing and understand it, you got to start from the bottom and start in like, you know, read up on AW. Like, there's an AWS like course, I want to say. Like, there's like a beginner's. Like, I remember one time I was looking through and uh, I was like, oh, I kind of want to upgrade my Amazon knowledge a bit my aws knowledge there was like a course i could take but then there was also a test for that course and i could take a practice test just to see you know where where i landed and i like aced it and i was like okay so i must know en enough to be somewhat dangerous in the beginnings of an aws so like from my beginner knowledge that's like you know you want to run it start by just running a box a server an ec2 instance and figure out how to run an app then you move on to like how to run multiple versions of your app and connected to a load balancer. Once you kind of understand that, then you can kind of start understanding what the hell Kubernetes is solving. Because it's basically that, the load balancing part, but way more complicated. <laughs> and to, to the point where I probably couldn't even accurately give you a, a brief understanding in the next couple minutes. <laughs> All I can say is that you have to practice it 
And I, the best way to do it is to get a job that has a system and uh, just look and read it and understand it and ask questions about it because those are the only ways to really learn it from my experience. Like, you know, reading books and whatever helps, but like you got to like use these systems because they're very complex and there's a lot of parts to it. And all you're going to do is have to learn chunks of how that system works over time by using it. You can run, you can roll in all this stuff on your local. If you're really that into it, you could do that as well. Just run everything on your own, on your local, your own projects, whatever. It's never that easy though. Anyway, um, let's see. So last guy here, are Jira cards supposed to be exactly what business says? I get Jira cards that are exactly what business says, including phrases like, do we need this? I don't know, etc. Is there a, is there a layer between coder and what business says, such as some type of architect? Jira cards I work on are total crap. I spent two or three days going back to businesses and asking them what they meant. Yes, you have to, this is what we talked about, you know, a couple episodes back. You know, you don't want to just get a Jira card that says do the thing, you know, that's us there's usually a layer, you know, either you have a project manager that's working with like uh, an engineering leader or an engineering manager to make the tickets or to interpret the tickets or, you know, so you don't want to go straight from, you know, business people and PMs straight to the engineers. It usually should be some sort of filter there, like, you know, a lead engineer or a, an engineering manager, an engineering senior, someone like that, that helps actually like flesh out the cards to be like, you know, implement header in, you know, common package instead of it just saying like update header. You know what I'm saying? Like a little bit more detail and stuff like that. Now, of course, you work at a startup. You're probably not going to have that because what you got like six people like, you know, Linda from HR is also making your tickets. You know what I'm saying? So like for those things that it's kind of just what you get and you have to work on it. Um, if not, then the owner should be on some, you know, someone who wears a vest to work, you know, not engineers who wear T-shirts to work. OK. That's usually what it's got to be. It's got to be a manager. Someone who wears a collar. Look out for the people that wear a collar. People wearing, you know, vests and stuff. Those are the people that write the tickets or like to write tickets or at least, you know, will volunteer to write tickets in my experience. I've never seen anyone wearing a t-shirt volunteer to do jack shit in Jira. I'll say that much. Yeah. Get a, do you not pound your manager. Tell your manager to get someone else to do that shit. You just want to like read the ticket and do the, do the code. It's a job. All right, that's enough ranting for today. Uh, hopefully, you don't get rift at your own company. Man, that sounds dark. See you next week. The internet is tubes. Tubes, tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, the internet is going to be delayed. A series of tubes. The internet is providers. The internet is consumers. The internet is you and me. The internet is not a big truck. The people who are streaming through a whole book at a time. Maybe there is a place for the internet. And again, the internet is a series of tubes. Hey, where'd you look at you? You made it through the whole thing. Congratulations, that's awesome. If you feel like feeding me material, go ahead and email me at query at ttpspodcast.com. If you want to be a guest on the show and discuss software engineering in all of its forms, uh, contact me at guest at ttpspodcast.com. If you happen to want to sponsor the show or just give me money for no reason, that's business at ttpspodcast.com. And then just ttpspodcast.com. Go there and see episodes and look at the website I made for it. Yeah. The, all those emails go to me. Uh, it's a one-man show over here. Uh, it's all an illusion. But I like the folders that the different emails make. So... <laughs> <laughs>